So show of hands, how many of you claim not just a birthday, but a birth week or a birth month and make people celebrate? Yeah, that's good. I'm glad. There's, there's probably more. You're just being a little shy, right? I think on some level, this is kind of the equivalent to that neighbor that still has Christmas lights up around Easter. You know, they're, they're celebrating Christmas, but really it just takes, you know, about four months to gather the same kind of energy to put them up to take them back down. And the gutters need cleaning, so it's convenient, right? So, kidding aside, today we enter into the second week of the Easter season, or Eastertide. A whole season, not a day, a whole 50 days to celebrate God's gracious insanity of raising Jesus from the dead. We all gathered last week, many of us dressed nicer than normal to celebrate Easter, and we'll continue to do that. You can, you can wear bow ties if you want. That'd be awesome. But e- even in the way we celebrate this season, there's kind of like this appropriate asymmetry to things. Like Lent, the season before Easter, lasts 40 days. 40 days to focus on the cross, to discipline and be recalibrated, to fast and to find our way with God in the wilderness. But on the other side of Easter, there's a full 50. I think this is like a small calentrical hint that in God's time, life always outnumbers death. Life always outnumbers death. So this week and next week, we'll continue in Matthew's telling of how it went down when Jesus' followers found an empty tomb. The final chapter of Matthew's gospel tells of this aftermath, this good news that, as the angel puts it, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he's not here because he's been raised from the dead just like he said. This is scary good news that needs multiple instances of reassurance to say, don't be afraid. This whole chapter seems very much about fear or more accurately fears displacement or calming or doing away with. Try to put yourselves in the shoes of Jesus' friends and family. The previous few days have certainly put you through the ringer. You've felt everything a human being can feel. You've been overloaded with sorrow and shame and disgust and fear, and now you might be so overloaded to the point where you can't feel much at all. I imagine Mary uh, Magdalene and the other Mary kind of walking like zombies to the tomb after going through this sort of emotional trauma. Maybe they were the most emotionally capable or courageous of the rest of this absent crew who's kind of scattered to the wind after Jesus was crucified, maybe for their own safety or maybe out of deep shame. But the Marys show up. The Marys show up. Maybe they're just looking to straighten up the tomb or to do a little something because there's nothing that can be done when the one you've followed, the one you've linked your life to, is dead. Maybe they're just making sure that Jesus is final, they thought final, resting place held a little dignity because that was withheld from Jesus in his last moments. But then, and you didn't see it coming, and neither did they, but then, you thought I was going to say Jesus, 
up here. No, there was an earthquake, <laughs> right? And an angel with a lightning face and snow white clothes. What is happening in this gospel reading? There are guards, and no doubt they're present to prevent some sort of like inconvenient conspiracy theory from happening. They want to just make sure like this thing is over. And they go from in charge, and they're pretty in charge. They've got a really awesome, easy post. Guard the dead guy, right? <laughs> they, or so they thought. They go from in charge to in a state of terror upon the arrival of this angel, the Lord's messenger. When you read the Bible, moments like these are known as apocalyptic moments. Apocalyptic moments. Not like end of the world, Jerry Bruckheimer apocalyptic, you know? Like end of the world as we knew it or thought it was apocalyptic. Uh, th I think there's a slide, Bethy. This, this is a slide from the first week of Advent this last year. So uh, it's pretty cool to stitch together Advent thoughts and Easter thoughts. Apocalyptic means an uncovering, a revealing, a glimpse into the way things really are. It's a good hint that a look behind the curtains like this is happening when strange, violent, hyper-real, supernatural things break in upon and interrupt quote-unquote reality. Things like earthquakes and lightning angels, right? Part of what's being revealed is that there's a new logic happening here, something we, we don't know how to even think about. A new logic made possible by Jesus dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. You see, death used to be the logic. It used to be the end. Rome used to be in charge, and the empire used to terrorize dissenters with fear-mongering tactics. Jesus was, notice all this is past tense, Jesus was a dead man, and the guards were goose-steppingly confident and full of life. But now something's flipped. Something has broken. Something is broken in, and now the guards shake with fear and walk around like dead men. <laughs> and now Jesus and those associated with Jesus are walking around fear-free and full of life. Jesus was crucified, has been raised from the dead. This is, this is a pivot. This earthquake marks a hinge. Uh, Stanley Harawas comments on this reversal, and I really wish I could do a good Stanley Harawas voice, but I'll spare you. Uh, those who had thought that they were alive now discover that what they took for life is death. Jesus' resurrection creates a life freed from death, from the death that grips our everyday lives. So, flashing back to last week, I mentioned... I thought it was kind of in passing, but I mentioned trying to stitch together a decent storyline for the good news of Jesus that's both more comprehensive and more complicated than the overly simplistic and reductionistic notions that some of us grew up with. And I thought that was a passing line, but several folks have, have, have come to me and, and said, I want to know more about this. Uh, I also want a way to articulate, kind of a short way of opening up this truly cosmic saving work that God has achieved in his bringing about and calling us to participate in. So here's another shot at that. 
I'm struck <coughs> uh, reading scripture by the, the ways that God continually invites us into the divine life. That these invitations persist throughout scripture. And maybe one day we'll do uh, a whole kind of s- series kind of breaking out each of these things into a whole sermon. Because um, these things show up, they're like motifs. They, they, they happen again and again in different places throughout uh, Scripture's story. But they find their culmination and fulfillment in the resurrected Jesus. Jesus' once but never again dead body reveals just how solid and how real each of these statements from God to God's creation really is. So you can write these down, you can meditate on them, they're really good to pray, and they are surely good news. The first one is, this is from God, first one is, I love you. Before you think that I'm being over-sentimental here, or before you like crank up your best Jesus is my boyfriend, contemporary praise song, Consider how fundamental this statement is to who God is. How basic, how elemental that God, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, one but three, exist always in perfect self-giving and receiving love and harmony before there was anything. That this trinity, this triunity exists in and between God before there was an outlet. This is a, a really cool, uh, I have a print of this in my office from Scott Erickson, uh, who did the stations in the street. And this is a really uh, cool visual for this. Um, you see each of those cups marked with some sort of symbol, the infinity for the Father, the dove for the Spirit, the shepherd's staff for the Son, and they're all giving and receiving to one another. And I love the way this portrays a sort of mutuality um, Bethy, you can go to the next one, because you can't hang this print wrong. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't change when you rotate it. Do it again. Yeah, see, it might even look better. I don't know which one's the best, because uh, there's no on top. There's just this cycle and circle of love. This means that God not only loves us, but God is love. First John reminds us this, that to be involved with God means to be the object and the participant of God's love. It says, God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This love isn't shown by how much we've loved God, but by how much God has outpaced us in God's love and sent his son to atone for our sins. Therefore, if God loves this way, we ought to also love each other this way. God says, I love you. The gift of Jesus who died and was raised is the seal and the stamp of this love, is the exclamation mark of love. It shows that love is a revival and a reunion, that love is unbreakable, can't even be broken by death. God says, I love you. The second statement uh, that God says and is operating at that empty tomb is, I am with you. I am with you. This is the key to Matthew's whole storytelling project. Like, 
um, ancient writings have uh, biographies, um, but the Gospels aren't really biographies. Uh, they're not. They're they're not history books. They're not uh, encyclopedia entries. They're stories to open up God's life to us through the the life, the ministry, the words, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So this is the way Matthew's whole gospel, his good news telling, works. Even as Mary, Jesus' mother, welcomes God into her womb, and Joseph starts dreaming weird dreams of having a divine stepson. The promise is happening. Isaiah 7, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This is the bedrock of Matthew's gospel. And then God, of course, in the form of the Christ child, is with his parents in their refugee flight from Egypt during Herod's imperial anxiety that leads him to a genocide of baby boys across his territory. Just as God was with his people, Israel, in fire by night and smoke by day, leading them in an exodus from Pharaoh's death-dealing cruelty. Even as Rachel weeps and won't be comforted for the destruction and killing happening around, God is in their midst. God is with them, and God is with us, even in the midst of pain and persecution, even as society decays. God is with the Christians in Sri Lanka. God is with our Jewish sisters and brothers in San Diego. God is with in the midst of death. God is bringing God's people out of death and into life, and this is the impulse. This is the keystone of the Christian life. It's this assurance that allowed... (coughs) Uh, John Wesley, to be able on his deathbed to peacefully but powerfully proclaim, the best of all is God is with us. Those are his last words. Aren't those awesome last words? Like mine's going to be like, can I have a glass of water or something, right? You know, and he says, the best of all is God with us. And it's so revealing. The best of all, not God's power, not God's providence, but God's presence. God with us. God's very withness is the best of all. And I think it's that proximity that makes the next statement a little less absurd. It's a statement that showed up on the lips of the angel to the Marys. Be not afraid. This is God's message to us. Be not afraid. I always think of the old Bill Fay song. Does anyone know Bill Fay? It's like a 70s folk singer. Oh, great. This is a great, this is great uh, uh, illustration to a crowd of which no one knows. Go look up Bill Fay. He had one album in 1970. <laughs> but there are amazing covers of this song, Be Not So Fearful. This is like a mantra song. Uh, the line says, be not so nervous, be not so frail. Someone watches you, you will not fail. Be not so nervous, be not so frail. Be not so nervous, be not so frail. Be not so sorry for what you've done, you must forget them now, it's done. And when you wake up, you will find that you can run, be not so sorry for what you've done. 
if obscure 70s folk is not your bag, maybe the third verse from my favorite hymn, How Firm a Foundation, says it better for you. This is taken, like plagiarized from Isaiah 41. Fear not, I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and I'll still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Be not afraid. In the midst of massive disorientation and reordering of trauma and drama, we find the resurrected Jesus with his disciples. He's allaying their fears. He's receiving their worship. It says they grab at his feet and worship him. And he's sending them to Galilee. He's gone ahead of them. Every time a message comes from God to a person, it's kind of a fearful affair. Because it's, it's a mini apocalypse. Like, we don't look at our quiet times with God as a chance for mini apocalypses, right? Like, every time we're encountering God, there should be a, a, a certain level of fearfulness because of what is breaking in upon us and what we're, the gravity of what we're being called unto. It bears repeating, be not afraid. Be not afraid despite the things that are pressing in on you. Be not afraid despite all the evidence to the contrary. Be not afraid despite what you think is inevitable or unbeatable because Jesus, the one standing right in the middle of history between God and humanity, has been raised from the dead. It means anything is possible. God's life is durable. Be not so nervous Be not so frail. Someone watches you and someone is with you. You will not fail. The last invitation then is walk with me. Walk with me. Jesus' death and resurrection has regained this possibility, this sort of fellowship, this sort of companionship, that God has come near to creation, has entered in to creation. Like any good friend, Jesus has come beside you. I love the tradition <clears throat> that remembers Jesus not only as, as uh, coming down from above us, but knows Jesus as a brother, the firstborn of the new creation of which we're the family, a brother beside us an elder brother who knows us and and spurs us on, knows you, knows anything you could be tempted or hurt by, has felt it and overcome it. Maybe that's why the first bearers of this good news were the Marys. The other Mary is a little bit unclear who who that might be. But we know who Mary of Magdala is. In Luke's gospel... She's a woman, and says, she's introduced in Luke's Gospel, as a woman from whom seven demons had gone out. And this really cast her in a a pretty negative light in Christian tradition until she actually becomes canonized as Saint Mary of Magdala. Immediately before this um, statement of Mary from whom seven demons had gone out is a story most attribute to Mary. Uh, most think that the woman in the story, though unnamed, is Mary Magdala. And she anoints Jesus 
with her most costly possession, the ointment from the alabaster jar, but also her tears and her hair. It's, it's just this weeping, worshipful, sad, and somehow strangely joyful mess that's happening. You all remember that story? There's some strange symmetry and, and kind of beautiful symmetry here that she'd be one of the ones helping to prepare Jesus' body for burial with oils and spices, and that she'd be one of the ones checking on the grave. She's chosen to walk with Jesus. She was an early adopter on this, and she walked with him to and through the cross. So when Jesus died, his death became a sort of death for her too. But then all of a sudden, that full stop of death becomes kind of an ellipsis, like a continuation. The angels, be not afraid on behalf of God, gives way to new speech that's happening. Angel says, be not afraid. And then he says, come and see. Go and tell. <laughs> these, these verbs get a lot more active. The news... The good news that's going to scare her, that Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's going ahead of you. For the Marys, these ones who have walked with Jesus to and through the cross, the call is clear. Keep walking with Jesus. And, and, and this walk actually turns from, more, from a walk into more of a run, right? It says they hurried to tell the other disciples. And here's, a, here's an amazing thought. <clears throat> for however, I don't know how fast the Marys were, how fleet of foot they were, but for however long it took the Marys to get from the empty tomb to the disciples, those two women made up the whole of the Christian church anywhere. <laughs> two. Like, we think 12 disciples, and then when Judas falls away, 11 is kind of ridiculous. Two. Got down to two. The only ones still around. The only ones with Jesus. The only ones privy to the good news that the grave is empty and so now two are fear and death. And we, two millennia later, inherit this message and this calling. Walk with Jesus. And this makes me think about um, like personally when you have good news that no one else has yet. It only happens a couple times in your life, right? Well, uh, personally, I remember this. It was around this time when we found out, I was set to graduate, and we found out that we were pregnant with Noah after a long time of battling infertility and problems. And, I, and it is absurd when you walk around in crowds on campus, when you're in the C2 bus, and you know something that no one else knows. <clears throat> and you're not even really sure how to tell or how it's appropriate to say this thing that you know, but you know it. Or I think about the uh, uh, Fat Tuesday, day before Ash Wednesday uh, campfire a few years ago when Will Pershaw had uh, an engagement ring uh, like zipped into his puffer jacket. And only he knew, like, tonight was going to be the night that, I, that he was going to ask Taylor to marry him. And he was so weird that night. Because <clears throat> only he knew. And then we got him back after that, right? But I think that that can also happen like when you get an, 
an acceptance letter, and you're the only one, obviously the admissions office that mailed it to you, but you're the only one that's opened it up, and, and you know that the future is different. Everything has changed, or, or maybe you have an idea or a song in you that no one else has heard or known, and you know that it's good. You know that it's real, and it, it, it kind of doesn't even feel real because it hasn't made its way out into the air, into other people's ears or minds, but it's so real, and it's burning inside you, and that's what the Marys were experiencing on that road. So as we leave here today, go, go on with these strong words. Like the first two are about God, and the second two are about you. God says, I love you, and I'm with you. Be not afraid, and walk with me. These are resurrection words, and they build on each other, and they're fulfilled and amplified by Jesus' cross and resurrection. Maybe you just need to start with that first simple reclamation that God actually loves you, that God cares about you, that in Jesus and by the Spirit that God God's love happens in the first person. God says, I love you. And then, and then maybe you can move on inside of this, this solid and expansive, capacious love to experiencing and expressing God's presence. I, d- I don't know of a better place to experience God's presence than around the table. Uh, around this table, uh, in a minute, we'll experience this and we'll remember and reenact this withness. I'm with you uh, through partaking of, of Jesus' body and blood. But also the potluck tables downstairs, the tables in your lives and throughout your weeks where you extend this vital presence. Jesus, in the breaking of the bread, in that you're called into a deeper presence, a deeper withness towards those who are hurting and hungry around you. And you do that in Jesus' name. Or maybe, maybe you're fearful. Maybe that's like the besetting mode for you that you can't shake. Or maybe you don't know that you're fearful. That's even worse. And you need to interrogate that fear this week and try to pull on some of those threads to see the ways that fear dictates the way that you live, the decisions that you make or that you don't make, the, the places you go and, and the, the people that you spend time with, the ways that you spend your money, the ambitions that you have, the, the ways that you are or aren't obedient. Because First John 4 again reminds that there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Jesus calls us, the Spirit equips us for courageous lives of love, that trust in God. And finally, perhaps this week you need to accept Jesus' invitation to walk. By all means, um, crawl before you run, if, if that's the case. Um, most of us are walking anyways, but, but while you're walking, Notice, ask for your eyes to be open to this friend that's been beside you the whole time, this Jesus who wants to walk with you, who's both friend and Lord, who's given you an everlasting life and wants to walk with you wherever you go and wants you to follow him and walk with him. 
Will you all pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you. We thank you for the ways that you reveal yourself uh, to us. As, as love, as one who loves, um, we thank you that uh, you um, have joined us to Christ so that um, when you look at us, we hear, these are my beloved sons and daughters in whom I'm well pleased. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen to be with us even to the end of the age, that you've given us your spirit, the advocate who will uh, be with us, who will come uh, beside us. Uh, we thank you that you continue to calm our fears, that you've done this, and we're just catching up to what you've already done. Uh, Lord, help us be um, those messengers uh, like your angels um, to each other uh, speaking that good news and that truth be not afraid be not afraid friend be not afraid and lord uh, give us legs to walk with you um, you you'll fill us with your spirit you'll enable us you'll call us um, help us stick by your side and we thank you for all these things and we thank you for this strong and resurrected life that you've called us into we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.